Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, many of us, and many of you listening, many of the people I talk to, and me included, feel regularly fairly overwhelmed by our work and by our life outside of work. And I will say, that seems to be the passing phrase that everybody says anymore. How are things going? Responded by, it's crazy. I think we're all feeling it. Now, it's also true that all of us have to make choices about how we do those things that really matter to most of us. Most to us, excuse me. So today, I want to talk about some of the latest research on leading as a parent and how to learn to think about your role as a leader and as a parent in a different way. And we're going to do this point from the point of view of being a parent and being a leader. But if you don't have children, stay tuned because you're going to find out that the methodology applies to absolutely everyone, whether you have children or not. So my guest today, I'm excited to welcome Stu Friedman. Stu's an organizational psychologist who works at Wharton School of Business. And he's been on the faculty there since 1984. He helped found or founded Wharton's leadership program and its work-life integration project. And he's been listed among HR Magazine's most influential international thinkers, recognized as some of the top management thinkers by Thinkers 50. Working Mother chose him as one of America's 25 most influential men for improving the lives of working parents. And the Families and Work Institute honored him with its Work Life Legacy Award. He's written two bestsellers, Leading the Life You Want is one, and Total Leadership is the second. And the second one also describes the Total Leadership Program that they now use worldwide. His latest book is Parents Who Lead. Now, Stu has won numerous teaching awards and is in high demand as both an instructor, a speaker, a consultant, a coach, a workshop leader, and in terms of policy. He hosts the Sirius XM Wharton Business Radio Show and podcast, Work and Life. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Stu. It's good to have you. Wanda, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I followed your work for more ages than I'm going to admit. So it's been, I've enjoyed it. I really valued your work, really appreciated it. But I've been tracking you for a long time, so I'm thrilled to have you. You've been talking about work and life and the integration of the two for ages. Why is this topic so important mm-hmm. to you? To me personally? Yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, based on that uh very generous and lengthy introduction, you will note, and your listeners will note, that I am ancient and have been around for way too long uh, doing this work. I, uh, as a graduate student in the early 80s at the University of Michigan, I studied uh, leadership development, but I was also very much interested in the relationship between work and the rest of life. But it wasn't until my first son was born, a few years after that, 1987, that uh, my world was was just transformed, and I could not get out of my head the question, what am I going to do to make the world a safe one for Gabriel to, work, to, to grow up in? And 
at the time, I was doing research on leadership development and how leaders grow uh, in all different settings, particularly in big companies. And I was doing consulting with companies on their talent management systems. But this new question that was viscerally very much alive for me, uh, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And when I returned to the Wharton classroom, uh, after some time away and, and asked the students, what are you going to do to ensure that the next generation, not of talent, but of people, is going to be healthy and strong? And this was 1987, and as you may imagine, there was, there was quite a lot of surprise that I was asking this question. Uh, and some people were quite annoyed, frankly, and they said to me things like, well, this is a business school. Why are we talking about families? And just because you had a child professor doesn't mean that we're really interested in your family life. So, like, why are you talking about this now? Um, and we had another case prepared for today. So why are you talking about this topic? <laughs> so those are some of the things that I heard. But I also heard people say to me, wow, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because I've been thinking about this and nobody's talking about it here at school uh, or elsewhere. Uh, I've got questions. And finally, one person said to me when I asked, what are you going to do as future business leaders to change the way we think about and act in terms of how we organize our organizations, our companies, our lives, to be able to nourish the next generation? One student said, well, you're the professor. You tell us. <laughs> and of course, I was simply asking, you know, the annoying question, which is what I have made a career out of doing, asking annoying questions, provoking people. Uh, but that question then changed everything for me. And I realized I needed to start to shift, to pivot in terms of my research focus and, and use what I had been trained to do, and that was to study uh, a, a problem and try to find answers to it. And that's, that's what led me on this, on this path to, to try to find answers to the question, how do people integrate the different parts of their lives in a way that works for all of them? Yeah. Boy, that, okay, so I, I'm dying to ask you, how do you integrate the different parts in your life? I think that's what you talk about in your book, Total Leadership, and in the program that you run on Total Leadership. So tell me about what that looks like. What did you find about how do you integrate your life, the different parts of your life? Sure. Yeah. Well, we, uh, this is back in 1991, I started the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project, which was dedicated to finding the answers to those questions. And at the same time, I, I also founded the Wharton Leadership Program. So I was doing both of those in parallel uh, at Wharton and also in organizations that were interested in both how to grow leaders and how to find harmony or integration among the different parts of life. Now, notice that I didn't use the term balance, and we can get back to that as to why. Uh, but one of the things that we did in the early 90s and throughout the 90s was to go out into the field and to find people in a variety of different settings who were good at this, who, who's, who were identified by other people as having kind of figured it out, how to find harmony or integration among the different parts of life. And what we found was that they had some principles that they followed in each their own idiosyncratic ways, but that, that, were, that were consistent across these people. 
and we articulated those in um, in workshops. We brought them to life in workshops that we started doing. And those principles were pretty simple. To be real, which means to clarify what matters most to you. People who are good at this, they know what they stand for. They know their values. They know where they've come from, and they have some idea of, what, of where they're going, a sense of purpose. And they work to continually clarify that with themselves, with people around them. So that's the first thing, to be real. The second piece was to be whole, which means simply to recognize and respect the fact that you're not just a work person, you're not just a family person, you're not just a community person, you're not just a private person and and citizen, but you're all those things. And what happens in one part affects what happens in the other part, generally speaking. So to recognize and respect the whole means to see who matters most to you in the different parts of your life and identify them as to why they're important and how what they need and expect from you and what you need and expect from them fits with your values, your vision of the leader you are becoming, the person you are becoming, the person capable of creating the world in a better way way in some in some form or fashion because that's what leaders do right they see reality they try to make it better bringing others along with them so the first principle know what matters second principle know who matters and then learn to figure out what they really care about by building trust engaging in conversation which you discover what they truly want not what you think they want so that was another piece of it that people are good at, who are good at integrating the different parts of life, they're constantly learning from the people around them what their mutual needs and interests are and adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. And the third thing that they do, and I'll bring it to a close here, is to be innovative. So to be real, to be whole, and to be innovative. Continually experimenting with new ways of getting things done that work not just for their family lives, not just for their business lives, not just for their, you know, their communities and friends, not just for their own personal health and well-being, but for all the different parts of their lives. They're always experimenting, and they're trying to make things better in ways that work for the people around them as well as for themselves. And we developed a set of tools for people to bring those principles to life and to cultivate those skills. Um, And I wrote about that in one of the first articles uh, in this field, in the Harvard Business Review in 1998, and that article is called Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. Mm-hmm. Because fundamentally, what these folks do, and what truly anyone can learn how to do, is to see beyond the trade-off or balance mentality and to look instead for opportunities to create value to win in all the different parts of life. Yeah. That's... um. Yeah, that's an important component, to win in all the different parts of life. Okay, so now before I go back to that one, I want to come back um, and just summarize for everybody because there are three really important parts there. One is this notion of being real, which means I know what matters to me. I know what my values are. I know what my purpose is. I know where I'm going. And in effect, I guess what I'm trying to achieve. And I think you also said there's a continual reevaluation of that. So I'm making Mm -hmm. sure that it's current and fresh and alive. So be real. And the second is to be whole, to recognize that I am. Because it changes, right? Go ahead. 
I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say you, you reevaluate it because what matters to you changes as you grow, as life changes. Yeah, right. It's not static. Yeah, exactly. So to be real, the values and the purpose and the where I'm going and reevaluate that. The second thing is to be whole, to recognize that I am many different people in work and in life outside of work. Um, actually, I have to pause on that one. I hate this work-life dichotomy. Work is a part of life. I want to talk about work and non-work exactly. and, and those how those mm-hmm. fit together. But to recognize and respect that. And I love what you said there is that the most important thing is to understand who matters to you and why and what you need and expect from mm-hmm. that person and how that fits your sense of who you are, your real side. But plus, you have these deep conversations with people that lets you understand what it is they really want and expect from you mm-hmm. and how do you accommodate mm-hmm. that mutual needs, stuff we don't do well in any circumstance, let alone when we're trying to lead and do all the rest of it. And you said adjust. It's adjust and adjust and adjust. And then the third part you said is innovate. New ways to get things done that make all of this stuff work in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the essence of it. Okay. Easy said, and I can imagine not so easy to do. So I want to come back to this notion you said that you think we should stop talking about balance. And because we see work and life as an zero-sum game, say a little bit more about what you mean by that. Why is it not a zero-sum game? Well, you know, the term balance suggests that um, if one part of your life is going to win, the other parts are going to lose. And... What we have found is that with a shift in mindset, and it's not necessarily a radical overhaul, but just a different way of looking at things, by taking seriously the notion that you operate in different spheres and in different roles and with different responsibilities, and some of those are in conflict, right? Uh, yeah. Your kids want you to be there, and your boss wants you to be there. All right, that's a conflict. But sometimes there's compatibility that you might not see. Well, your 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 company wants you to make new products that are going to actually make life better for other people. And indeed, that's what you want your grandchildren to be thinking about when they think of you. Mm-hmm. So those are just simple examples. But there are ways in which there's compatibility, and there are ways in which there's conflict. Most people assume conflict because of this dastardly term, balance, which has in your head the seesaw or the scales, right? One wins, the other parts lose. And what we have found is through a systematic uh, look at who you are as a person, where do you come, where do you come from, what are your values, where are you going, what's your purpose, who matters to you in the different parts of your life and what they need and expect of you and what you need expect from them and really thinking through where those conflicts are and where there is compatibility among the different parts of your life. And then to imagine what can I adjust? What can I change that's going to make things better, not just for me, not just for my family, not just for my friends and my community, not just for my business, my work, but for all four. What kinds of things could I do that would have a positive impact on all the different parts of my life? And many of these effects are indirect. Like if I take care of myself better, I'm going to be uh, a healthier father around longer to take care of my family. I'll be less of a jerk 
to my colleagues you know, that I'm working with, and I'll probably have an opportunity to spend more time in the community or with my friends. So that's just one simple example of how impact in one domain, a change in one part of your life, say just yourself, uh, can have a spillover or a ripple effect into the other parts. So the problem with balance is that you just assume you've got to make sacrifices all the time. And it's better to think in terms of harmony or integration among the different parts because you put on a different set of lenses and you ask a different question. And the question is, what can I do based on what I know about what matters to me and the people around me? What can I do that's going to make things better for me and for them? And when you take that approach, you're thinking like a leader because you're thinking about what's the reality of the world that I'm facing? How can I make it better for us? And you're much more likely to find ways to make change happen, even if they're small changes, if you take this proactive, intentional view as to what is possible for me in terms of producing what I call four-way wins change that's good in all the different parts. And my experience, having now taught this, I brought it to industries uh, worldwide for the last 20 years and to our students in various settings, is that just about everybody can come up with something if you ask them that question. It's just that they don't get asked that question very often. Yeah. I was just today uh, talking with somebody who's thinking about taking on a much larger role in his organization. And, you know, kind of debating, um, you know, I don't want to totally sacrifice every part of my life in some of the same ways that you're talking here about the different aspects of your life, um, family or friends or physical or whole range of factors. And asking the question of, can I do this job without completely sacrificing? And it strikes me that when you start asking that question, you're on the wrong path for leading, because it sets you up as a resentful leader. It also makes you ineffective. Because if you're making that much sacrifice, you're not going to be that good at what you're doing, I think. Now, so I like your notion of changing that to a sense of harmony. What can we do that's going to make it better for all of us? All the four parts mm-hmm. in my life, the four sets of people mm-hmm. in my life. Okay? Yeah. Um, it, it starts, again, with uh, being as clear as you possibly can be about what you are here to do. What, why are you doing what you're doing? And my experience is that with, with clients and students at every age range you can imagine, from high school students to retirees, that that's, that's one of the hardest questions to ask and answer honestly. Why really are you doing what you're doing? What do you care about most? And what's your purpose? What, what do you want to leave behind? So it starts with getting as clear as you possibly can be about that. And we have a series of exercises that help people to do this, um, most of which were developed when we first launched this program. I invented it when I was the head of leadership development at Ford Motor Company. So 20 years ago, uh, I was asked by the CEO of Ford as he was trying to reinvent the culture of that 100-year-old iconic manufacturing global powerhouse. Uh, I was one of the 30 executive-level people he brought in to try to change the culture, and I was head of leadership development globally, that's where total leadership came to life. Because our charge was 
we're going to change how we think about leadership here, and we want to invest in the whole person. So we developed this program there and then have been refining it ever since. And among the things that we ask people to do are tell the story of the two or three or four episodes that have shaped your life history, that have determined who you are in terms of your values and your beliefs. Describe a day 15 years from now, from the beginning of the day to the end, in terms of what you're doing, who you're doing it with, and why you're doing it, your vision of the future. Um, a number of other pieces of work that help people to identify what they really care about and to share that with other people, to get feedback on it from peers, to give feedback to others who are doing it. So all this work is much richer if it's done in a peer-to-peer coaching scenario. And that's where it really begins uh, and, and, and is quite liberating for most people to clearly articulate that which matters most to them. It gives them a sense of uh, purpose that is unmuddied, and that opens up pathways for how to see the future uh, and why they're doing what they're doing in ways that are good for them and good for the people around them. But of course, that's just the starting point. When you take seriously the question, who really matters? Why do they matter? What do they really need? What do I really need from them? And how do I talk to each one of those people? Let's say it's eight or nine or ten, your most inner circle of the most important people in your work or career, your home or family, your community, and you practice and prepare for How am I going to talk to these people about what really matters to them and to me? And you discover from doing that in a concentrated period of time, everyone gains from this. Most people are quite nervous about it because they're afraid of what they're going to hear, but they come out of those conversations learning more about what other people really need, not what they were imagining. And what they find is that they have a lot more love and support surrounding them than they thought. And a lot more freedom to do things in ways that are good, not just for them, but for the other people in their lives. And that's where they become less stressed and more open to different ways of doing things that don't necessarily require the kinds of sacrifices that they feared they had to make because they were making assumptions about what other people needed from them. So, well, having a better take on the real world that they're operating in as leaders in their lives makes it actually easier for most people at all levels of their uh, of, of their career of, of an organization and, and in their careers to find new ways of getting things done that don't necessarily require sacrifice. And they experiment with those. So you might say, for example, to your boss, what I'd like to try for the next month is, uh, a simple example, is you know working remotely one day a week. Because I think that's going to make me a more productive sales manager. And here's why I think it's going to help me to boost my numbers, even though you won't be seeing me live in the office on, on Wednesdays, uh, whatever it is. Um, you know, for the next for the next month, could we try that? And let's see how it works. And if it doesn't work out for you, well, then we'll try something different. Can we try that? And of course, most people will say, "Sure, let's give that a shot." Uh, and then you you collect data on whether or not that's working. And if it isn't, adjust. If it is, keep doing it. Um, so that's just a simple example of how you can have a kind of experimenter's mindset of continually innovating, 
trying new ways of getting things done, but that they're based in the reality of what's going to work for other people, not just you. That opens up people to the possibilities for trying new things uh, with, a, with a little more risk. Sorry, reminds me of a lawyer that I worked with a number of years ago who um, had just taken on, again, a big leadership role in the law firm on a global basis and was struggling with getting mm-hmm. a sense of maintaining his life. And, you know, when you ask him, what is it you're most missing? His answer was, I miss reading The Economist. Because that's what gave me conversation topics with my sure. clients. That's what kept me up to date, and so on. And you know, we just then brainstormed. If that's what's missing, how do you get it back in? What are the simple things that you can do? Can you come in Wednesday at ten o'clock instead of at eight o'clock and read the Economist for a couple of hours? I mean, what's the little things that are going to make that possible? I think when you do the exercises you're talking about, Stu, what happens is you get so focused on the pieces that you really need to adjust, not on the big picture mm-hmm. of how I boil the ocean and make everything perfect. And that's what I think yeah, is, is it becomes so much compelling. More practical. Okay. It becomes right. doable. And you're all, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, I was going to say, finish your sentence. It all becomes practical and? And you're also thinking about the impact of a change that you're making, not just on one part of your life, but on all the different parts. So how by reading The Economist do I become a better father Yeah, is a question you might ask. Or, excuse me, a better friend. Um, or just feel better about myself as well as a better resource for my client. Right. So what we have people do is systematically practice training their minds to think in terms of four-way wins. How by taking this action do I have an impact that's good in the other parts of my life? And most people don't ask themselves that question. But when you do ask yourself a question, you start to see how what you're doing here in this part of your life actually does ripple out into the other parts. And that changes your motivation because you realize, well, I'm doing this exercise program not just, you know, so that I can fit into my clothes better and feel better about how I look or how I feel, but it's actually helping my kids. Or it's helping my, my, you know, my, my direct report, it's helping my client, helping my friend. Yeah. And that, sh- that really shifts your mindset into someone who is thinking like a leader in all the different parts of their lives. And you feel less guilty and less afraid. Great. Great. I can imagine this is a pretty powerful program. Total Leadership is the book on this one. Stu, it's a perfect time for a break. So we're going to take a break. Um, okay. I've been talking with Stu okay. Friedman. We've been talking about three of two of Stu's bestsellers. One is leading the life you want, and two is total leadership. And the whole notion about thinking about the four aspects of your life, you, family, work, and friends, and how do you win in all four, meaning how do I integrate and create harmony in all four, not create a zero-sum game and win in some and lose in some others. When we come back, I want to now talk specifically about Stu's latest work on parents who lead and how this model has been applied to parenting. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Stu Friedman. Stu's an organizational psychologist at the Wharton School of Business. He's been on the faculty there since 1984 and founded the Wharton Leadership Program as well as the Work-Life Integration Project. The book we were just talking about is Total Leadership, but what I want to turn at the moment is shift this model about four-way wins, about thinking about harmony and integration in all aspects of my life and understanding what it is that really matters to me, who it is that matters to me, what it is they need and want from me as well as what I need and want from them or expect from them, and then be innovative in ways of achieving things that are good for all four aspects of my life, not just for one side of it. So at one at expense of the other. That model, the four-way win model, Stu has now applied to parenting. And so, Stu, what I want to hear is when you turn this to parenting and you start to look mm-hmm. at parents who are who are leading, what did you discover and how does all this fit together? Well, uh, for years, my clients and students have been saying to me, Stu, can you develop a, a version of this that I can do with my partner because we, you know, we need to be doing this together. And I'd say, well, just, you know, do the, do the total leadership thing in parallel. Uh, that'll work. And they said, no, 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 you, we, need, we need some more guidance on how to work as a, as a, as a partnership, uh, particularly around the most critical leadership challenge we face, and that is raising our kids. And I I thought, okay, that's interesting, and I was trying to avoid having to write another book, but then the Harvard Business Press said to me, uh, you know, we need a working parents book, and you're the guy to write it, so can you do that now? And I thought, oh my gosh, uh, I'm approaching 65. Do I really want to do this? Not really. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I was getting to that critical milestone, and my kids asked me, uh, so what do you want for your birthday, Dad? And I said, what I really would like, since I have, you know, I don't need anything material. I'm a pretty simple person. How about if you just spend a little time writing to me um, about what you would like to see me do with the next period of my life uh, in terms of, you know, what's left of my productive time? 
what would you have me do? And if I were able to do what you want me to do, how would it help you? So they all did that. And my, my wife did the same. So I had these four amazing pieces that they wrote to me. And I said, one other thing, you have to be willing to talk to me for an hour about what you wrote. Mm -hmm. So yes, the professor gave his family an assignment, Wanda. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was fantastic. Uh, And I mean, there's a lot more I could say about it, but the the long and short of it was I had to write this book um, because they kind of wanted me to. And it really brought me back to my original motivation, which was to, Try to help kids because they are the unseen stakeholders at work. They are affected by their families, their parents' work experiences in powerful ways. And I could I could help them through this through this program by focusing directly on the experiences of working parents. So I also realized that I I needed a partner in this, and so Alyssa Westring, who is herself a young mother of two kids and a tenured professor at DePaul University in Chicago and has been working with me as a, as a research partner for 15 years. I recruited her to join me, and we did this project together. And what we did was we, we reimagined the total leadership approach as, as applied to people raising children together, parenting partnerships, we call them. And you know, most of these are married couples, but not all. You know, there's all kinds of partnerships that people form to raise children. And we had them do a similar but different set of activities that engage them in, first, on their own, identifying their values, uh, what's important, why, their vision. And then we had them share that with each other and come up with a common vision for their collective future. Mm. And for many people, that was enough. Like, wow, this is you know, something we've never done before, and it really opens our eyes to what we should be doing right now. Let's do it. Uh, Let's make the changes that are so obvious once we start to articulate what our shared future should be. But we cautioned patients and worked with them through in our laboratory for well over a year how to talk to their critical stakeholders in all the different parts of their lives, but starting with their kids. Hmm. So... Why are you a parent? Why does that matter to you? Uh, how does it affect your work? How does it affect how you feel about yourself and your role in society? What do children need? So we became uh, pretty adept at reading the, the child development literature. We're not, we're not child psychologists. We're not therapists. We're organizational psychologists. But we distilled the essence of that literature and offer it in pretty simple terms here. You know, what do kids need? And now think about each one of your children. What did they need from you mm-hmm. as a mother, as a father? And then get on the same page with your partner. What do you think mm-hmm. this child needs? What do you think this child needs? All right, how do we now talk to that child in an age-appropriate way about what they really need and what we really need from them? And so these stakeholder dialogues, let's call them, these conversations with kids, were, for many people, quite illuminating as they started to discover things about their kids that they just didn't know before in terms of what they saw when they looked up to mom and dad or mom and mom or whoever it was. And that, that was really eye-opening. Uh, 
uh, for them. Like one one single dad reported how um, you know, one of his core values was about learning and how he wanted to be a continual learner. He wanted to transmit that to his to his son. And so they're talking, I think the son maybe was four or five or so. Uh, they're talking about learning, and and the son says, you know, there's something that I really want to learn how to do, Dad. Dad says, well, what is that? He said, I want to learn how to vacuum. <laughs> what? You want to what? <laughs> and so, I mean, that's just something he never knew. Uh, and, and, you know, all kinds of wonderful things came out of that. Um, but you know, there's those kinds of insights and much more profound ones as well. Like, I would like you, mom, to not be on your smartphone when we're together because it makes me feel like you don't really care about me. For example, that's a not uncommon observation. So it starts there. They then undertake these conversations with other key people in their lives, like their bosses and direct reports and others at work extended family and community, they do a stakeholder analysis and conversations, and then they do the third part, being innovative, but they're doing it together. So they're looking for family four-way wins, things that they can do collectively to make things better for all the members of their family, as well as for their careers and their communities and for themselves personally. And that's what we describe in Parents Who Lead with these gripping examples of, you know, the lives of uh, real working parents trying to lead, uh, trying to make things better by seeing the reality of the way things are and bringing people along with them to make it a little better. Right. You've said that several times. See the reality of what we're facing, bring people along, and make it better. Mm -hmm. And you've said also that that's what you believe real leaders do. I do, I, and and that's why I like to think of leadership as something that can be exercised by anyone at any life stage. It's you know there is such a thing as executive authority in organizations, and and uh, you know the the demands of uh, leading in a hierarchical setting, uh, but it's also very possible to be a great leader and have nobody reporting to you in an official capacity. The key is to have some sense of what's important and where you're going and to be able to connect with people so that they see how it's a good idea for them to go with you. Mm-hmm. And they do see that when you know what's, what, what, what they care about. You can align what you're trying to get done with what matters most to them. Uh, So mobilizing people towards a better tomorrow is the essence, as I see it, of what leaders do. Uh, Mobilize people for a better tomorrow. But um, what's interesting about that one to me, better tomorrow, is that, you know, it's easy to sit there and say, well, to mobilize people for a better tomorrow, then I have to have a pretty good clue all on my own of what a better tomorrow is. And I'm really smart and I'm really special Mm -hmm. as a leader and I'm expected to have the answer to this. Mm -hmm. So here's my answer. Mm -hmm. And then we struggle with the mobilize part. And what you're saying is it doesn't work that way. It starts with facing the reality within, sharing our experiences of what we each value and care about and why we're here and what we're doing it, and then have conversations about what each of us need um, or expect. And that's the process of bringing people along. Exactly. And it's hard to do because other people generally don't see the world the way you do. And it takes a lot of skill and discipline and really a, a life's work 
to get good and continually better at understanding the world through the perspective of others, taking that leadership leap, as I call it, and seeing the world through their eyes, from you know their hearts and minds. What do they see when they look to you? That's a really hard thing to do. Most people take it for granted, but it's, uh, it's a skill, and it requires uh, patience, compassion, uh, courage to be open, uh, a real seriousness of purpose in terms of uh, inquiring actively as to how other people see the world, and taking that in uh, rather than denying it. It's, yeah. it's all too easy to say, well, you're you're not as smart as me, you're wrong, and I'm right, and, you know, just follow. And yeah. you can get away with that in some setting. It's harder to do that in a family, though. Yeah. And indeed, we know now that it's harder to do that in, in the business world as well. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what we're talking about here, a way of thinking about leadership as bringing people along with you to a, a better place, requiring open inquiry and continual inquiry, continual learning, that's becoming a much more commonly understood way to think okay. about leadership. That's right. I hear lots of people talking about that. I don't know that we yet understand what it takes to get there or what the skills are to require to get there, but I think we're starting to see that for a host of good reasons. Um, Stu, I'm going to shift, not that this isn't a powerful conversation, but I want to shift gears because I want to be sure to tap into your wisdom about policies. And I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about policies that support families and children, whether that's from the corporate side, whether that's from the community and school side, or whether that's from the legislative government law side. So do you Mm -hmm. see companies who really get this right, who really have the right formula for supporting families in a good way that's good for all, good for the company, good for the families? And if so, what are they doing that's unique? So this is a hugely important question, and, you know, it's a real tension in our field as we struggle with where do do you put your energy and attention in trying to make positive change in the world? Do you try to change uh, government policy so that you have the kind of uh, supports for families that actually help them through uh, family medical leave, uh, through massive investments in childcare, in education? and in ensuring that the people who provide service to those who are dependent, like children and elderly, have the resources that they need to be really investing in those people's lives. So that's one level. And I've worked with two White House administrations on this, uh, as well as a number of state uh, and and municipal governments. And it's hard uh, because there's all kinds of tensions. And it takes a long, long time to make change happen that is ultimately cultural and institutional. So there's these macro level changes that every one of us can do something about as informed citizens by voting and by supporting the policies of the people that um, are, you know, have consistent views. Um, And the real action for change in this arena is, is at the city and state level because the federal uh, system is, is just so, uh, encumbered by polarization and difficulty in really getting much done. Yeah. You compare what we have to other countries uh, that are, uh, you know, like in, in Western Europe, for example, and our policies and practices are, frankly, you know, Neanderthal, by, by contrast. Uh, 
So that is one big, huge issue that uh, that everyone can get involved in without without turning their whole lives around. And of course, we're trying to do our part. At the corporate level, you've got a lot more freedom and flexibility to determine the kinds of policies and practices that, that work. It starts with an attitude, a mindset that your life outside of work matters to us as a company. And it matters because you're going to be more productive when you're going to be healthier, less of a healthcare risk, and more likely to stay with us if we convey to you in the way that we organize and the way that we um, treat you that that you're a human being and that we care about that. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a social welfare organization only out to, you know, help people's children because you can't afford to do that, and that's not your role in society. But you can, in creative ways that work for you and for the people that matter to you and your company, make flexible arrangements that are, again, not zero-sum, not good for me, bad for you, or vice versa, but what are we going to do that's going to work for us? So that is the key, to be thinking in terms of wins for both parties, the business and the person in their lives beyond work. And the problem that most companies have is that they think about balance, which is why balance is such a bad term. Okay, mm-hmm. if I give you flexible work arrangements, that means I can't control you and, I, and I'm going to get reduced output. Well, what we have found is that when you teach people how to lead their lives using our model, uh, total leadership, what, what happens is that people end up devoting a little less of their attention to work as a result of the changes they make, having clarified what's important, who's important, and made some experiments for change. They reduce their attention to work, but they perform better at work. Let me say that again, because that might seem paradoxical. Less attention to work, better performance at work, as as assessed by the people who judge their performance. How could that possibly be? Well, they are more focused on the things that matter. They're less distracted by things that are happening in the other parts of their lives. They bring more energy to their work, and they're more committed. They're also spending less time on the things that don't matter because they've discovered what really matters to the people around them. Mm-hmm. So there are business benefits to taking seriously the idea that people have lives outside of work. You just got to help them uh, think in terms of what your employers are doing that are good for them and for you. So, for example, when I first got to Ford Motor Company, I had written this Harvard Business Review article Work and Life, the End of the Zero-Sum Game. I had written a book called Work and Family, Allies Are Enemies. And I'm the head of leadership development in the, in the Leadership Development Center. And I inherit a team of employees. And they all come to me saying, oh, you're Mr. Work Life. I need Fridays off. And, I, <laughs> and things like that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you don't get it, people. I've just arrived here uh, as an executive. I've never been an executive before. Um I have a boss now, really for the first time in my life, and he's a really serious person who has really high expectations for me. You're here to help me. Get it? <laughs> and they're like, what? What? Are we, we thought you were Mr. Work-Life Balance. Well, no. I'm here to make this company more successful. 
So if you need something that's going to help you live your life, you got to help me figure out how that's going to help us do what we have to do as the leadership development center of this company. So now if you've got an idea for how to make that happen, let's work on that. And of course, every single one of them did. But I was asking a different question that they had in their head. So this mm-hmm. is all for the question of mindset. It's got to be win-win. If you, if you approach that conversation as, all right, here's somebody coming, asking for something from me. I already am strapped for resources. I've got no time. I've got not enough money. And, and now they're asking for more. No. <laughs> no. Right. No. Well, if, if somebody comes to you and says, I've got an idea for something that I think is going to make life easier for you, Stu, and our organization, and it's also going to help me, can we try that? And I'll say, okay, that is something I'm interested in. Yeah. So that's the essence of it. And there are companies who think this way. Um, and I've, I've interviewed a number of them on my radio show, which is called Work in Life. It's on Sirius XM. And uh, I can tell you about some of them, but let me pause here to see if I've answered your question and if you want to go further. Well, what I like about this approach is this is not a policy that we take off the shelf from someplace and now implement and beat managers over the head with because they're not following the policy or employees get sanctioned because they're not following the right procedures and policy. This is changing an attitude, which is a much harder thing to do, and saying we're looking for the things that are wins for all of us. Me, you, and the organization. And that strikes me as radical and also quite difficult to do. But yeah, I'd love to hear a couple of examples of what you have seen companies do that are exciting. Well, when you take this approach, I mean, it's useful to have policies that say, here you can have 12 weeks of uh, paid uh, parental leave. Um, We do support flexible work arrangements. But we also know from now years and years of research that a lot of those policies and practices don't get used because they're stigmatized. Mm -hmm. Oh, look at him. He actually took eight weeks of uh, parental leave, uh, paternity leave. No way he's getting the next promotion. Mm -hmm. That kind of of attitude and mindset is still quite prevalent, although it is changing, as especially millennial dads are, are changing the game, and they're trying to be much more fully engaged fathers than their fathers were, and they will also want to have kick-ass careers. So one of my favorite examples is a company called Basecamp, mm-hmm. which is like a, an online a repository and message, uh, messaging, but mainly it's a, a document-sharing um, system that I've been using as my virtual office you know, for the 50 projects that I'm running around the world with colleagues in many different places, you know, for a long time. And uh, Jason Freed, uh, the the CEO and one of the founders, has a, a philosophy that is very much along the lines that we've been talking about here. And uh, that's the way they operate. Uh, they, you know, they that one of their screening devices for hiring people is that they can write well, so that. People communicate a lot through writing, which allows them a lot of freedom in terms of when they have to actually be together. Um, And there's an insistence on private, quiet time uh, that is, Mm -hmm. you know, fallow and for thinking 
and for getting things done without interruption. Um, so that's that's one that that's just off the top of my head. There are others that we could talk about. And what's 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 exciting is that you're seeing companies now trying, really trying to alter how they get things done. And the new ones have a better shot at it than the older ones because it's easier to create a culture that yeah. supports the whole person when you're starting from the ground up. If you're if you're a you know a two hundred year old bank, it's a lot harder. Yeah. The, um, I interviewed, not Jason, but David Hannemeyer Hansen, who's one of the other partners in the founding of Basecamp, and they collectively uh-huh. have a book called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, and it's sort of the base, I think yeah. there's 30 principles that they use at Basecamp to make a culture that doesn't have to be crazy at work, um, and it's a very yeah. interesting, very much tailored to them and to their culture and to the kind of business they are, they're a software house. Uh, but it certainly would inspire all of us to think about different philosophies. Well, Stu, yeah. I think, you know, as I as I try to wrap this up here, we got about one minute left to say, I think that okay. what excites me the most is um, is multiple components. One is this renewed sense in yourself as a person and co as a parent. What is it that I value? What is it that I'm here to do? What is it that I'm trying to achieve? So there's a sense of the values that matter to me. It's a sense of the purpose. And it's a sense of the vision of where we want to go. And as parents, creating a co-vision. And as a worker, as just a person, creating your own sense around that one. And then two, understanding who matters and having the courage to have conversations with those people about what they expect and want from you. As well as you to say what you expect and want from them. And I think it's that dialogue, that conversation, as scary as it is, is part of the secret in being able to mobilize people and bring them along. And it's also part of what makes families productive. And then to get creative once you're freed by your own expectations. Stu, inspirational for me and I trust for everybody who's here listening. My guest today, Stu Friedman, the book we've been talking about as parents who lead is the most recent one and the former one that lays out the four-way win model is called Total Leadership. Stu, thank you for being a guest. Thanks so much for having me, Wanda. It's been a real pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.